So if you remember from last week, Jesus has gone up to the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the fact that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths is an important detail that will help us understand really what's happening in this chapter. So what was the Feast of Booths? What was the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it was one of the greatest feasts that the people of God celebrated. Many of the people would have said this was the feast that was the most exciting. Because during this feast, the people actually built booths. They, they built these temporary shelters and would live in them during the seven days of this feast. And they did all this remembering the days of God's faithfulness as they wandered through the wilderness until God had finally brought them into the promised land. And so you can imagine the entire city of Jerusalem full of these makeshift tents. Even those who couldn't even make it to Jerusalem still celebrated and actually would build a booth on top of their roof and celebrate the feast. And so there was so much excitement. Every year, you would go to Jerusalem and camp in the city. It was a great time of rejoicing. It was a feast of joy and excitement. But during the time of our text, that year, there was a different type of excitement in Jerusalem. There was excitement for the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Was he there? What was he going to do next? And this excitement was there because of what he did during the previous feasts. He had provided food for thousands of people with only a few loaves of bread and fish. He had said that he is the bread of life who has come down from heaven. And then at another feast before that, he had healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And then he challenged the authorities on their Sabbath keeping. And so in verse 11 of, of chapter 7, we see that the Jews were looking for him. And there were mixed reviews. Right? Some of them said that he was a good man. Others said he was leading the people astray. We know that the religious leaders hated him. And they sought to kill him. And as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've been seeing that this opposition to Jesus has been growing. Right? It's, it's getting more and more intense. And so for those of you who are taking notes this morning, I've divided the sermon into two sections. So we're going to see the, the opposition towards Jesus, and we'll see that in verses 25 to 36, and then also in the division in 40 to 52. And then we're also going to see the invitation from Jesus in verses 37 to 39. Two sections, the opposition towards Jesus and the invitation from Jesus. And the main point, the, the main point of the message this morning is this. Those who come to Jesus and drink are satisfied and receive the Spirit. Those who come to Jesus and drink are satisfied and receive the Spirit. So the topic of conversation at this feast was Jesus of Nazareth. There was widespread confusion about his identity. Who is this Jesus? 
That was the question that most of the people were asking during this feast. Think about how many question marks are in our text here, right? Isn't this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 25, where does he intend to go that we might not find him? Verse 35, what does he mean? Verse 36, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Verse 41, all these questions and many others in this passage relate to who Jesus of Nazareth is. Last week, Pastor Scott talked about some of the people who were confused about who Jesus of Nazareth is or was, the religious leaders, right? The brothers, Jesus' own brothers were confused about who he was and the crowd. And in verse 25, we have a new group of people, some of the people of Jerusalem. We know that this is a different group than the crowd that we previously saw last week in verse 20 because the crowd in verse 20 had no clue that people were seeking to kill Jesus. But the people of Jerusalem in verse 25 are aware of the religious leader's plot to kill Jesus. Look at verse 25. They say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're confused. The people of Jerusalem are confused. Why is Jesus allowed to preach in the temple? Those who wanted to kill Jesus are allowing him to speak in the place that they taught. And so the people are led to think, have our rulers changed their minds? Do they think that Jesus is the Christ? And then they're also confused about where Jesus had come from. Some had this assumption that when the Messiah came, nobody would know where he came from. And yet later on in verse 42, some in the crowd say, has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And there they're they're referring to Micah chapter five that prophesies where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so all the people are struggling with the idea that they knew where Jesus came from, or at least they thought they did. They knew that he had been raised in Nazareth. The crowd here is very similar to those who read a blog post or a Twitter post and just assume that it's fact. They don't examine the fact for themselves because if they were to dig deeper, they would have realized that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem as the prophets foretold. And then Jesus responds to them in verse 28. He says, you know me and you know where I come from but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This was a rebuke to the people. They had no idea where Jesus came from. They might have known where Jesus grew up, but they were clueless to his true origin. And yet he had told them time after time, that he had come from above, that he had been sent from the Father. They were confused and knew very little about him. And in this rebuke, he tells the people that they didn't even know God. Jesus has told them the truth and his opponents don't like it. And they respond. They want to arrest him. They tried to arrest him. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Come. 
Crazy, right? They wanted to arrest him, but then they couldn't because his hour, the time when he would willingly die as a substitute had not yet come. And so the restraining power of God prevented Jesus' enemies from even laying a hand on him. And that's mentioned twice in in this text. And then Jesus gives the people another rebuke. He says, we just talked about where I came from, and now I'm going to tell you where I'm going. I'm going back to him who sent me, and you can't come. And this caused even more questions. And the chief priests and the Pharisees send police officers to arrest Jesus. And then we see in verse 45, the officers come back to the religious leaders without Jesus. And so the religious leaders say like, why didn't you bring him? And in verse 46, the officers answered, well, no one ever spoke like this man. Jerusalem is buzzing at this moment. They're buzzing with one question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And think about it. John is recording all this gossip and all this questioning for a reason. That question, who is Jesus, is the most important question in the world. The entire gospel account here of John was written so that you could answer that question. John says in chapter 20, where he gives the purpose of his book, in verse 31, he says, I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that we would believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that he is the Son of God. Believe that he is the Savior of sinners. This is the most important question for your life. Who is Jesus? Can you answer that question? Because life and salvation depend on how you answer it. Like the people who oppose Jesus at this feast, many today have been misinformed or have false expectations of who Jesus is. Some people expect Jesus to solve all their problems. While Jesus is the source of comfort and strength and help in a time of need, he didn't promise to solve all our problems. He never promised us an easy life, a pain-free life. In fact, he told his followers that they would face trials and tribulations in this life. Some people have materialistic expectations of Jesus. And so when they get sick or they don't become rich, they get bitter, they get frustrated, and then oppose Jesus. Some people expect Jesus to fit into some specific political or social agenda. They'll try to use Jesus to promote their own agendas But Jesus does not align himself to a certain political group or social agenda because he both calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves and he calls us to repent of our sins and come to him in faith. 
So if you take into account the way that you are living, the priorities that you have in your life, what does that say about how you answer that question, who is Jesus? It's possible to be members of a Christian church, and yet the question, who is Jesus, could be insignificant to our day-to-day existence. How sad. John is writing these responses of the people here in order for us to think about where we're at. Our eternal destiny depends on how we answer that question. A good answer to that question is He is my Savior, He's the Son of God the absolute master of my life. Jesus came to fulfill his father's work to redeem sinners from their sins. How do you answer that question? Who is Jesus? As we look at this text, there's so much confusion, so much division, and then this increasing opposition And yet, in the midst, we have this invitation from Jesus. In verse 37, we're told that Jesus stood up and cried out. How many of you think of Jesus as being someone who yelled or shouted? There were times when Jesus shouted. Things needed to be heard. And in this moment, John records that he cried out. And remember, all of this is going on during the Feast of Booths. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, knowing this is important to understanding this chapter and understanding why Jesus says what he says here. So each day during the Feast of Booths, the priests would gather together and they would draw water from the pool of Siloam. Just, this is not in the Bible, but this is uh, from historical documents and it is true. All right, so each day this feast, the priests would gather together. They would draw water from the pool of Siloam and and as they would bring the water back to the temple, the words from Isaiah 12, 3 were sung by the people. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Also, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 14, 8 was read. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. And so every day, these priests would take this pitcher of water and pour it around the altar at the base of the altar. And this water ceremony helped the people remember that God had given them water in the wilderness. And the people of God would cry out, God is our Savior. God is our salvation. Let us draw water from the wells of salvation. And then on, that, on the last day of this feast, as they came to the altar, the priest would actually circle the altar seven times. And then the chosen priest would pour out the water on the altar. And as a sign that this had been done, he would raise his hand and all would fall silent. 
And it seems, as John tells this story, it's in this moment that Jesus cries out. On the last day, at the climax of this feast that celebrated when Moses struck the rock and the waters gushed out to satisfy the thirst of weary people, that, as that water was poured out that symbolized that water that came from the rock and all were silent, there came a voice, a loud cry. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now with that context, now do you see why Jesus says what he says here? That water imagery doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus has seen this being performed in front of him. Everyone is sitting down and now Jesus stands up and cries out. And we've seen this in every chapter of John's gospel. There's always been this Old Testament event that pointed towards who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's happening here as well. Remember in the book of Exodus, the people were thirsty and they cried out. And God said to Moses, take your rod and strike the rock and waters will flow out from it. And so Moses took his rod and in the text, it says that the Lord, Yahweh, stood on the rock and as Moses struck the rock, who else was being struck? The Lord himself. And so here at the Feast of Booths, water is poured out, celebrating the water that came from the rock that Moses struck. And now Jesus is claiming to be that rock. The fountain of living water, the one who will truly satisfy thirsty sinners. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R rock. The rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So on the cross, God the Father took the rod, the rod of judgment, and he struck the Lord Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the cross, taking our sin and our guilt upon himself. Because by nature, we are sinners. All of us are sinners by nature. And we have sinned against a holy God. And in our sin, we thirst for things that will never satisfy. But Christ went to the cross to die in order that we might live. In order that we would be forgiven. In order that we would be reconciled and satisfied in the only one who could bring true satisfaction. Jesus himself. This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus had to do when he came. And as the priest raised his hand at the climax of this feast, as the people realized the feast was at its climax and at its end, and also realized knew deep down that they still were not eternally satisfied. Jesus cries out, if you are thirsty, come to me 
and drink. If your longings and desires can't be satisfied, if you thirst and you find yourself longing for something that this world cannot provide, Jesus says, come to me and drink. But then the invitation gets even better. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John helps us interpret this in verse 39. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Those who believe in Jesus not only find true satisfaction, but they receive the Holy Spirit. Rivers of living water here refers to the Holy Spirit. And as one commentator says, God did not intend for believers to be ponds in which living water of salvation stagnates. Instead, the scriptures say out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Those who have been satisfied, those who have received the Holy Spirit, don't keep it in all to themselves. They pass it along to others. The Spirit empowers them to share this living water with those around them who are also thirsty. They evangelize to the lost. They encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ. Believers allow the spiritual life within them to spill over and pour into others' lives to impact others around them. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what the Spirit does. But John also mentions that the Spirit was not given until Jesus was glorified. What does that mean? Well, the Spirit was already working. We know this. Already regenerating people's hearts. But John means that the Spirit was not fully given. People were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit completely until Jesus was glorified. In John's gospel, the time of Jesus' glorification is when he goes to the cross. In chapter 12, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time to take up his cross, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in chapter 13, when Judas left the Last Supper to betray Jesus, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus is glorified on the cross And it's out of his death that Jesus supplies his people with the Holy Spirit. And that's why John records, and John is the only one of the gospel writers who records this, that one of the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus' dead body. And in John chapter 19, verse 34, it says, and at once there came out Blood and water. Blood and water. The blood is the sacrifice for our sin, and the water is the sign of the Spirit who flows from the fountain of living water. Now, with all that said, isn't this a beautiful invitation? You see the context surrounding all of this? J.C. Ryle says this is one of those passages that deserves to be printed in letters of gold because it contains a wide and full and free invitation to all mankind, 
which makes the gospel such good news. The fact that Jesus would give an invitation to the people here is remarkable if you think about it. Despite the hatred and the opposition, despite that the police are there to arrest him, Jesus still invites all to come to him. He stands up among the people. And John tells us that he cried out from the passion of his soul. Charles Spurgeon said this, whereas his custom was to sit and teach the people who gathered in a ring around him, on this closing day, he now sought a prominent place. And there he stood, conspicuous before them all. Behold, he stands and pleads. I think I see the master's face beaming with holy affection and his eyes streaming with tears as he pleads with them. Do you notice who this invitation is given to? To all. Jesus doesn't discriminate here. The invitation is to all, to anyone who is thirsty. Not if anyone is qualified, not if anyone is deeply committed to him, all you have to do is see your need. Jesus is inviting people who don't feel worthy. He's inviting people who know all too well that they're not good enough to deserve salvation. When he says, if anyone thirsts, he's touching the deepest need of the souls of all men and women. He's talking about that spiritual thirst that we all have that we try to satisfy with other things. We try to satisfy it with money. We try to satisfy it with sex, with power, with everything else in the world. But we are drinking from polluted streams. And Jesus comes and says, I offer you pure, unending water. And all you need to do is come and drink. There's nothing else you need to do. You come and believe. So maybe this week you've, you've tried to quench your thirst in the polluted well of pornography or success. Maybe you've been envious or jealous and so you've resorted to gossip. You've resorted to judging others or stealing. We're all thirsty. Every person has this need to be satisfied by the living water that Jesus supplies, but not everyone recognizes that need. All these people at this feast, think about what they were there to do. They were there to worship God, to remember what he had done in the wilderness and how he had brought them into the promised land. They remembered when the the rock was struck and burst forth waters and they were singing. Singing praises to God and God is in the midst of them, standing, crying out, telling his sinful people, come to me. 
But if you don't understand who Jesus is, you'll never come to him and drink. John is saying that Jesus has told us who he is. The Savior whose body would be broken, bearing the burden of our sins, and the giver of the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest longings. Only Jesus can quench your thirsty souls. And so do you feel your need for him? Do you know that in yourselves that you are dry and dehydrated and in need of living water? He wants me to feel that, and he wants you to feel that as well. And to see that he is an infinite fountain of living water. We come to Jesus not by performing, not by achieving, but by believing and by receiving. Not by performing and achieving, but by believing and receiving. Believing in him. Believing that he is the savior of the world. Believing the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit that flows from him. That's how out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. If you want to make a difference in this world, if you desire to influence your school, influence those people at your job, influence your family, your community, it begins here. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water, not a bucket that will eventually run out. Rivers of living water. So again, are you thirsty? Are you needy? Do you feel the brokenness of your sin, your guilt, and your failure? Listen to the crying voice of Jesus. Come to him. Come to the waters. Drink, believe, and live. If we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. And if the Holy Spirit indwells in us, then we have everything we need for life and godliness. And if you already know Jesus, if you have believed in him for a while, are you coming back to him for more? Because we all get thirsty. I hope that the Spirit, Holy Spirit works in all of us to come to Jesus and to drink. Those who come to Jesus and drink are satisfied and receive the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and this beautiful invitation that comes from Jesus. We acknowledge that our souls are thirsty and we often drink from the streams that never satisfy. Give us this living water this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be working in us and that the rivers of living water would be flowing out of our hearts. Make us fruitful in telling others about Jesus and we pray for those here this morning who have never come to Jesus, that they would see their sin 
that they would recognize that they are thirsty and dehydrated, that they would see that who Jesus truly is, that they would come to him and drink for your glory.